As we all know, knowledge is power. And when it comes to money matters, knowledge can also mean security and even opportunity. We're trying to include more and more people into the financial ecosystem because we know from lots of studies that if people are financially included, their lives improve dramatically. Making sure that people understand how to get onboarded, what help there is out there to be part of the financial ecosystem and to be able to lead a financially sound life. Financial education is critical. But unfortunately, good financial acumen isn't something that's easy to come by. And it's a knowledge we either have to seek out for ourselves or learn by doing. Schools do a great job, but at best, they can teach the theory. If I use the analogy of another life skill, think about swimming. You can learn the theory, but until the moment you get into the water and do it for yourself, you are not going to learn properly. And until you actually have some money, until you're actually using it, you're actually taking those decisions, making those mistakes, you won't learn fully. This is Financial Futures, the podcast that charts the frontiers of fintech innovation. In this special three-part miniseries, we're exploring the work FIS is doing by partnering up with fintechs and entrepreneurs to shape the future of the financial services industry. I'm your host, Erin Dangler. And in today's episode, we're exploring the role fintech plays in financial education and finding out how this often overlooked aspect of learning plays a critical role in financial inclusion. We'll find out why leaving young people's financial education up to schools isn't enough and what the consequences of neglecting money management tutelage are. And we'll find out why financial inclusion is such a vital component of modern society and what institutions can do to reduce the numbers of financially underserved and unbanked individuals. Joining us today on our exploration of financial education and inclusion is Head of Banking and Payments for Europe at FIS, Sylvia Mensdorf-Pui, and Co-Founder and Chief Operating Officer at GoHenry, Louise Hill. But before we can begin to look into some of the solutions behind financial education and inclusion, we need to start with the basics and find out what we mean when we talk about financial literacy. I think for me, financial literacy is three key elements, the knowledge, the understanding and the confidence that an individual needs to be able to make informed and effective decisions with the financial resources available to them. It's uh, a key determinant of lifelong financial outcomes. And increasingly, I'm very happy to say, recognized as being a core life skill. And I would add to that, that it's not just understanding it, but also forming good habits around it. Money can be a very difficult and complex subject and there is oftentimes a lot of shame involved around getting money wrong and not understanding it and so being able to overcome that shame and get the confidence is critical as Louise said. And I think perhaps another angle to look at as well is, is in an increasingly digital world 
there are more and more financial services being created, which makes money more complex for individuals to navigate. The rise of the buy now, pay later schemes over the last couple of years, subscriptions, accessing music, games, entertainment, all the way through to managing your income. It is becoming a more and more complex world. And so those skills and that financial literacy is ever more important. So these are really important lessons that young people need to be learning. Where are kids currently getting their financial education from? And what exactly are they being taught about money management? The question I often get asked is, isn't it the job of schools to teach children about money management? And the response that I've used many times to that is that I was a school governor for eight years at our local secondary school. And if that did one thing, it was that it taught me just how much schools are responsible for and just how many things they are expected to teach kids, not just reading, writing and arithmetic, as they used to call it. And while I think schools do have a large part to play in financial education, we need to do more than simply putting it on the school curriculum. I think that We all need to work together. I think money management isn't the role of one group. It's for industry, for government, for schools and for parents to ensure that that everybody has access to financial education from a really young age. You're saying that more is needed to teach kids about financial matters and it's going to take different groups working together to really tackle the problem of financial illiteracy. Where do you think that schools are falling short in this task? Schools have so many things that they're expected to teach children. They're not specialists in the area of financial literacy. And very often, certainly in the UK, where it is taught, it tends to be in secondary school, which uh, we would very much say is, is too late. So I think schools do a great job, but at best, they can teach the theory. If I use the analogy of another life skill, so think about swimming. You can learn the theory, but until the moment you get into the water and do it for yourself, you are not going to learn properly. And until you actually have some money, however little it might be, until you're actually using it, you're actually taking those decisions, making those mistakes, you won't learn fully. And I guess the challenge with financial education is it's not as interesting to a child as swimming. So we need to find a way to make them want to take that leap and learn about money. And that's really why GoHenry exists and why about six months ago we launched our money missions, which are in-app gamified money lessons. And they engage kids in the full financial education curriculum, including all the money basics, earning, saving, spending, investing, credit, money safety, and more, but in the way that kids like to learn. And what we're seeing is GoHenry kids absolutely devouring those and working their way through them. And that is now giving them the theory as well as the practical tools of the debit card and app. If I can add to that kind of a European continent perspective, I completely agree with you, Louise. It's, you know, everybody coming together, creating financial education for children. But what I see with schools, and they have so many jobs they have to do, but one thing that I would say is there is no 
money management curriculum. At least in the Netherlands, that doesn't exist. And I've checked and it doesn't exist in most countries in Europe. In the Netherlands, we have something called Money Week. Our queen is very engaged when it comes to money matters, but it's one week out of the year. And so if you don't offer and include a curriculum that starts at a very young age, then that is very difficult. But again, the schools can't offer the practicality. They can only offer the theory. And so your analogy holds perfectly. Uh, Louise is kind of bringing the practicality and the theory together is where it becomes really strong. And let's say no one was to offer this kind of money management education. What are the consequences of not arming young people with good financial knowledge? We commissioned a study at the end of last year to show just how vital it is that we teach financial education in order to bridge that capability gap that's costing the UK billions every year. And some headlines from it, people who did not receive financial education as a child are more likely to be unemployed or earning substantially less today than those who did. And 40% of those people who said they didn't receive any financial education said that they had no savings at all. Whereas adults who did receive financial education as children, 46% more likely to start a business than those who don't. Just think about the business opportunity that that creates and the income and revenue opportunity that that creates. Those people will be £70,000 richer in retirement. You know, that's a, it's a real sea change in people's life outcomes. And when we bundled all of that up, and, and these are UK stats, it showed that prioritising financial education in the UK would inject an extra £7 billion into the UK economy every year. So roll that up to 2050, and that's £200 billion. Then replicate that across Europe, and, and you can just see the difference that doing this right, teaching these skills young can make to our society and, and our economies. And that's, I think, the beauty of financial education when you get it right, because I think there is sometimes a very negative vibe around the financial services industry. And some of that is really fueled also by people who don't understand it and therefore through ununderstood bad behavior get into trouble. And I think the financial services industry, when they contribute to financial education, actually also help in the perception and ultimately it helps everybody and it helps society overall. It's a big thing to solve with something that makes a huge amount of difference. Clearly, there's an opportunity here for society to promote financial education and to be more financially inclusive. So I imagine that the way our financial systems have evolved over the last decade and with the rapid advances that COVID inspired, money has in some ways been a little more abstract. How do you think the rise of digital payments and the decrease in cash use has affected young people's understanding of money? I've got three children and ultimately money is a means to an end, right? We use money to exchange. It's what we've built as humans to enable us to trade. So ultimately, every time you buy something, it's a trade. And when you give a child physical money, 
and they trade them, say, ice cream, you understand that you've given something and you've gotten something back. It's changed in its physical form. As soon as money becomes digital, as soon as it's just having a card, then you keep the card, you get the ice cream. So for small children, it is very difficult to understand that there is not an endless pool of money at the tap of the card. And that really persists into teens as well. I found personally with my children that the moment they really start understanding the nature of money is when they get their own jobs. Because then you can kind of say, okay, well, that sweater, I want to buy it. Oof, I got to work 10 hours for that. Ah, mm, let me think about that again. It's so critical when we combine digital with money that you actually give them the tools so they can try it out and they can fail and they can suddenly run out of it, which is easier to show when it was a piggy bank and you brought it to the bank and they emptied it and they counted all the coins. The fact that money is is more and more digital. If we think back to the, the last couple of years, the pandemic has ex- accelerated that shift to digital, both in terms of people shopping more online and the number of shops who've elected to stop using cash. That has really propelled digital payments even faster than they were already increasing. And when we look at our youth economy report that looks into the spending, saving and earning behaviours of Go Henry children, we've seen ever since we started producing that, that Generation Z and Gen Alpha coming through, they will almost always choose to go cashless. Only 14% of six to 18-year-olds spending was in cash. And that makes it doubly important that they are understanding that when it's gone, it's gone. Money doesn't grow on trees. Therefore, the importance of payments tools, spending tools, and of course, Go Henry, we bring that to life for them. They can see that when they spend their money, they get a little ping on their phone to tell them they've just spent £4.99 and they've got this much left. Or they've tried to spend something and the transaction has failed. We tell them why. We tell them because you don't have enough money. So that's always front of mind. Due in part to the rise of digital payments, many young people have lost the concept that the numbers they see on screen reflect a real-life bank balance. With bills and coins playing a smaller and smaller part in financial transactions, it's no wonder that kids aren't as well equipped to navigate money matters as older generations. And combined with the increasing number of financial service platforms and products, the need for better financial education becomes clear. But financial education is just one part of the larger financial inclusion puzzle. So where exactly does this knowledge fit into the bigger picture? We're trying to include more and more people into the financial ecosystem because we know from lots of studies that if people are financially included, their lives improve dramatically. Making sure that people understand that, how to get onboarded, what help there is out there to be part of the financial ecosystem and to be able to lead a financially sound life. Financial education is critical when it comes to financial inclusion because a lot of times people are excluded because they don't grasp 
the system. So when we talk about financial education, we don't look just at it from the perspective of financially educating children. There are lots of adults out there that are not financially educated and that needs help. So it's really, to me, about reducing shame. You know, everybody finds money difficult. (laughs) They don't often admit it. But it can be easy in a couple of simple steps and here's how you go about it. Don't be ashamed of asking for help. Don't be ashamed if you don't know this. And making that accessible is critical to be financially inclusive. And that is sparked by education. I think Sylvia's absolutely right. And I think one of the things fintech has done is they have built services and products to fill gaps or weak spots in financial services. So Go Henry, we spotted a gap where children were being left behind and seek to fill that gap. If you think about a lot of the other fintechs that have been very successful, they found other underserved or even completely not served groups of individuals and have launched products and services that address those needs and very much have debunked some of the um, slightly more esoteric or, or cryptic versions of financial services that exist. You know, the idea of the stockbroker in a, a cloistered, dark, woodlined office trading shares. Well, you can now download an app and auto round up your transactions so that when you buy something for £2.79, the extra few pence gets rounded up and put into your investment pot. And those services, they're using simple language. They're, They're debunking all the mystique that used to exist around investing. That's all about financial inclusion. That's giving people who maybe can't access what has been provided in the past, that they are able to access it in a way that meets their needs and makes sense to them. You mentioned something there, Louise, that I'd love to dig into a little more, the underserved, the unbanked. Can you tell us a little more about this issue? There are more than 1.2 million unbanked adults in the UK alone. And the age group that's most likely to be unbanked is 18 to 24. So the 18 to 24 age group accounts for almost one in four of that 1.2 million. What interests me, of course, is that to date figures have excluded children. There's been no assumption in the stats that have been produced in the past that children actually need to be banked or need access to money. And there's little to no information in the public domain about that in the UK. In the USA, there are some stats that predict 34% of teenagers are unbanked. And I think for many, I know young people that we talk to, many of them say that starting university or their first job is first touch point with a bank. And that really does mean that we are throwing a huge number of young adults into the world of adult finance without practice, without guidance, without education. And the only thing that can result in is poor borrowing practices, unwise financial decision making and debt. And I read something that horrified me over the past year in the UK, one in eight young borrowers has been chased by a debt collector. So if that doesn't say we need to be teaching kids as young as possible, then I don't know what does. Wow. 
That is a startling statistic. One in eight. So I have kids that are right at that age. They're just being launched into the world uh, out of college, starting their first job. And it has been a lifelong process teaching them about money. I I couldn't imagine them just uh, walking out and starting their first job without knowing any of this. So I'm wondering, we've already talked a little bit about where the issues around financial education stem from. What about the unbanked? Like, what do you think the root causes of that are? I think the issue comes from a couple of places. A lot of the unbanked is migrant population, unfortunately. And that is something that needs to be solved. What gives me hope is that when you look at the Ukraine war crisis, you can see that there was a very distinct drive to make sure that as Ukrainian refugees came into different countries, that there was the capability of onboarding them quickly onto the financial system. Oftentimes when you when you look at getting into the financial system, the banks are required to perform KYC, know your customer. If you don't have a document, if you don't have a place to stay, then it becomes very difficult to actually have a bank account. And that is something that is being recognized because obviously there are good reasons why KYC is there to prevent abuse. But at the same time, that is a hurdle for certain parts of the population. So again, both governments, but also the financial services industry and some fintechs have stepped into this to say, okay, how can we solve those problems? Yeah, it's scary how inaccessible bank accounts can be without having a fixed address. And of course, you know, people got trapped into that vicious cycle of no fixed address means no bank account, which means no job. And it's a tough cycle to break. With that in mind, how can institutions, educators help people avoid that trap? Where and when does financial inclusion begin? One of the research studies that we often turn to is a study done by Cambridge University quite some time ago now, and it showed that children form their attitudes and habits towards money from the age of seven. That's just soaking up things in society, in their home life. And if they're starting to form those attitudes and habits by seven, you know, that tells you why financial education, financial inclusion as children is so critically important for adult life. And if I may add to that, oftentimes people think that financial education and not being able to deal with money well is related to poverty. I actually believe that there is a persistence of being not able to deal with money, but that ability is also formed in very affluent homes where, you know, children are consecutively bailed out, the money is not an object, they they don't have to save up to buy something, they don't have to get a job to be able to afford doing things, and therefore none of the habits are, are formed. And I think that's just a, as big a problem as if you come from a background where money's tight and then money is an object, potentially you then learn better how to balance it because you're seeing that your your parents are having to do it. So I think the inability to deal with money is doesn't really depend on your background. It depends on what you've been taught about money, what it is, 
and how you deal with it. To have the strongest and most positive impact on financial education and inclusion, children need to develop good habits from an early age that they can carry on into adulthood. But as we've learned, schools might not be the best place to develop these skills, which leaves it up to fintechs and society to equip them with the knowledge they need. So what is it that makes for a great financial education tool or platform? As we've developed GoHenry, I guess the thing that we keep top of mind is that kids need to want to use GoHenry and they need to have fun when they're doing so. So design is crucial. If what we're building isn't fun, if it's it, it has to be visually appealing, we want people to learn and we want them to be proud to show their GoHenry card and be seen using it. And I guess part of that is making sure that we build in empowerment, because if we're empowering kids and allowing them to learn by doing, then that's giving them a great foundation. And that is going to make them pleased to use the services and proud of doing so. We've built in, there's a framework there where the parent sets limits and, and controls that, that make sense for them and their child. And that means the child or the teenager can make mistakes in a safe environment. We talk a lot in the business about the four pillars of money management, earning, saving, spending, and giving, and creating open conversations in the home around each of those four topics. And the whole concept is about theory and practice, the so basic using the service, it's practical learning. We have a huge range of cards, which can be personalized with the child's name. I think we're, we're somewhere around 80 different designs at the moment. And we've, again, learned over the years how much kids like that. And I've already mentioned money missions. We were really proud to release that, actually. As I said, it was something we worked on long and hard in the pandemic, invested our time and, and energy into building. And that was to marry the theory with the um, practical tools that we offer. But you asked, what have we learned that matters? <laughs> I could talk forever. There are so many things that we've learned, but fundamentally it, it's that, the four pillars of money management, the marrying of practical tools and theoretical education, and letting kids take the lead and learn from them how we need to shape the service to meet their needs and their parents' needs. That's Great. I love how you talk about bringing together all the facets of money management and learning from the children how to make the best platform. Something you both mentioned earlier was the importance of creating safe spaces for young people with their money. Could you explain how you're doing that with GoHenry? The basic service offers a prepaid debit card and app. There is an app for the children. There is an app for the parents. And the parent can set up regular pocket money payments to the child or not if they don't wish to. They can set up tasks and chores. That's to teach kids about earning money. I think some of the most common ones are things like emptying the dishwasher or walking the dog or doing your homework and set money against each of those so that the child learns about earning money. 
either the child or the parent can set savings goals and the child can auto save towards those. With the spending, every time a child spends, actually both the parent for the younger children and the child get a little ping on their phone or tablet to tell them they've just spent two ninety nine and and they've now got three pound twenty seven left, or if the transaction fails, why it's failed. And then the fourth pillar, earning, saving, spending, and giving. In the UK, we partner with the NSPCC. In the US, we partner with the Boys and Girls Club of America. And we allow the kids to make micro donations to those charities. Earlier this year, we went over the threshold of £250,000 had been donated to the NSPCC by Go Henry Kids. And I think the average donation was seven pence. So you can you can imagine from that just how many kids had taken that decision to give to other children, uh, which was fantastic to see. So, you know, there are all those tools there so that kids can learn practically about earning money, saving it up and you know, that delayed gratification idea of of waiting until you've got enough money to buy something bigger, spending and learning about the implications of spending, and then also learning and understanding that they can do something really positive with their money and and donate to children who might not be as fortunate as they are. Wow. (laughs) Just wow. It sounds like there's a lot going on with the GoHenry platform. You've got parental controls, education tools, even a bit of gamification, it sounds like. And presumably having that partnership with FIS has helped enable a lot of this. Could you tell us a bit more about Go Henry and FIS's working relationship? How have the two organizations helped each other? The partnership with Go Henry, I think, started more than 10 years ago. So FIS provides the card processing and card issuing capabilities to Go Henry's prepaid card for kids. And we're very proud that we've been able to help Go Henry also expand into the US. And so we're looking at what more we can we can do also in terms of supporting financial education. But uh, Louise, I'm curious because you've been there all this journey, what do you think about the partnership? Well, as Sylvia says, we've worked with FIS for a long time. The 10th of November this year will be our 10th anniversary of being live to the public. And we've actually worked with FIS for longer than that because, of course, we we had to build the bits of the jigsaw puzzle and bring all the the partners together that we needed um, to create GoHenry before we launched to the public. And we did always hope that we would be able to build GoHenry to a large size. We do have well over 2 million customers across the UK and the US. And we've recently acquired a French company called PixPay, who operates across both France and Spain. So we're expanding our global footprint fast and intend to continue to do that. So when we launched, one of the things we looked for was what I like to call world-class partners so that we knew we could tap into their strengths and their knowledge and we could grow with them and they could help us grow. And I think the team at FIS helped us with a huge amount of advice when we first started. And that sense of partnership, I think, has continued throughout the 10 years. And we're proud of what we've achieved with FIS. 
Well, it, it sounds like it's been a busy 10 years building GoHenry to what it is now. And I'm curious because you've talked a lot about how it helps to develop young people's financial acumen. But at the same time, it's a fully operational financial platform. So my question is, do you see GoHenry as a financial service platform or as an educational tool first? I think that's a really good question. It's not a question I'd asked myself before. And I guess you would expect me to say we're both. We are a financial service and we're an education platform, but fundamentally, education first. That is what triggered the idea for GoHenry. It was it was how on earth I could teach my children that every time they clicked on the iTunes account, they were spending my money and how I made that make sense to them in a way that they would understand. That's where the idea came from. So education first, and it's absolutely what I'm still most passionate about, as I hope has come across during this conversation. I definitely wouldn't worry about that. I think the focus on education really has shown through our conversation. So as we start to wrap up now, I'd really like to get both of your predictions for the future of financial education and inclusion. Do you see our society becoming more financially inclusive? I absolutely think the world will become more financially inclusive and go Henry is leading the charge of including every child. I think there is a lot of realization at, at many different levels about the importance of financial education in combination with financial inclusion, more so than there ever was. And I think the tools are becoming easier. I think digitalization is making reach wider. There are problems that come with that, right? So when you think about financial inclusion and you combine that with digitalization and financial education, if you don't have that digital asset or you don't know how to deal with the digital world, then it becomes more difficult. So there are layers to it. You know, the UN recognizes it, governments recognize it, financial services industry realizes it, fintech realizes it, and we're edging on. There's always going to be more work to do. It's one of the reasons that I'm part of the ecosystem, I think. Contributing to money access is a service to society. And Louise, what about you? What are your thoughts? I do think the world is becoming more financially inclusive. I think... Digitalization has meant that companies like us have been able to step into a gap and build something, I think, in a way that was impossible 50 years ago. And as I said, a lot of the fintechs in particular have identified and filled areas that were underserved or not served at all. And I also think something I've seen over the last few years is a lot of institutions recognizing that the financial well-being of their staff, of their employees, is critical to them functioning well in their workplace. And so they're starting to add financial well-being products to make sure that their employees and staff are well-informed, are confident, are making good money decisions because they now understand what an important part of a person's entire life that plays. So, yeah, I think the world is becoming more financially inclusive and that's a great thing. That's something that gives hope.
Sylvia Mensdorf Pui is head of banking and payments for Europe at FIS, and Louise Hill is co-founder and chief operating officer at Go Henry. That's it for today's show. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time when we'll be learning about ESG's secret weapon, business process optimization.